All right, I'd like you to take your left hand and stick it out like this here in front of you, and we're going to sing together. Um, let's see, I don't want to move out of the camera. Okay, so um, you're going to uh, clap to the person's hand next to you, their left hand, your leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and down on your hand twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up. Oh, that's good. We haven't done this in a while, have we? All right, we're going to sing in just a minute here. Good. All right, ready? Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Very good. Very good. It's ironic that's a song about unity and some of you just hate that song and you look at me with such evil in your eyes. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> One of the most famous experiments uh, in human behavior is well known. It's a well-known test because it's so easy to understand. It's easy to put yourself in this situation. You, you've probably heard of it. It's popularly known as the marshmallow test. Ever heard of the marshmallow test? It was conducted at Stanford University in the 1960s and 70s. It's been repeated at various times since then. Researchers were trying to figure out when delayed gratification forms in children. This is what they would do. Uh, They'd bring children, young children, into a room with a researcher. The researcher would welcome them there and offer them a treat, often a marshmallow or a cookie or something like that. And uh, the researcher would say, now, I'm going to leave the room, and when I leave the room, you can eat this marshmallow if you want. You can have it. But if you wait until I come back, I will give you two marshmallows. You can have this one now, or you can wait when I come back, and I'll give you another one so you'll have a a total of two. Uh, The researchers would leave and wait usually about 15 minutes, and uh, actually, they would go and watch these little children. Uh, there are a variety of, of responses. Uh, some immediately picked up the marshmallow and ate it and sat there happy as can be. Some very patiently, very calmly sat and waited. Others, though, actually most of them, these little children were in agony because the marshmallow was there on the table in front of them. Uh, some of them would close their eyes so they didn't have to look at it. They'd fidget in their chairs. Some of them would pull their hair, just trying not to eat this marshmallow because they knew they were going to get two of them if they just waited. Uh, they waited a variety of, of time. 
uh, for this during this experiment. I wonder what, what you would do if you were in that room, sitting in that chair with that promise. Actually, I wonder what you do do while you're sitting and waiting. Whether you realize it or not, all of life is a trade-off like that. You are constantly making decisions about long-term and short-term rewards. In the world that God has made, every choice has a consequence. One of the ways that the Bible describes a wise person is that they're able to make decisions based on a long look. The Bible does not want you to be happy for just five minutes or merely five years or only five decades. The Bible is aimed at your supreme satisfaction for five million years. I wonder if your decision making reflects that long look. This line of thinking is is woven into the Old Testament, especially into the Old Testament law. Wherever God sets down a command for his people, he tells them what will happen if they listen and what will happen they they don't. And I want to show you that that pattern in, in Scripture this morning. And I want to do it as a way to help us think together about what motivates you to do what you do. Why do you make the choices that you make? Uh, Why do you embrace certain options? Why do you reject certain others? What are you looking for? Why are you making the decisions that you're making? What motivates you? The reason I ask this question is because you don't have to look very far into the Bible before you discover that it calls you to make some really hard choices, some very difficult choices. Um, in, in, the, in your bulletin on that, that sheet that's in there, I, I printed out Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is one of my favorite psalms. Look at what it says, and I want you to think about the difficult decisions that are here in Psalm 15. Listen to what it says. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, whoever does these things will never be shaken. So here's what God requires. Notice that we shouldn't do this, but we, we do. We skip over verses, uh, verse 2 because they're religious words, right? Blameless, righteous. Let's move on here. Speaking the truth. Speak the, those who speak the truth. Sometimes it just seems easier to lie, doesn't it? You'd save yourself a lot of trouble, right? If you just lie. It'd be just easier. Verse 3 isn't much better. It's whose tongue utters no slander. The problem with this verse is I don't see a footnote which exempts comments about public officials. Where's the Congress exemption to Psalm 15? Maybe it's in the Hebrew. (laughs) It lets us out. How about verse 4? Who keeps an oath even when it hurts. What sort of pressure do you have to face in order for you to break a promise that you've made? How, how much pressure does it take for you to break a promise? 
I, I know most of us at some point in time have committed, have overcommitted ourselves. You find yourself just with too many responsibilities and you just can't do all the things that, that you say you're, you're going to do. I, I know that happens. But, but this, is, this is talking about oaths, those serious things that you have said you will do. I, sentences that start with, I swear that I will or I vow that I will. It's a good passage to read at a wedding, right? Keeps his oath even when it hurts. There's a lot of hard things in this. This is, what, this is one psalm in the Bible. There's a lot of hard things. Just, what, what is going to keep you going in moving forward when the Bible calls you to do hard things? You know, one of Scripture's most common answers to that question is reward. Reward. That's actually what the first half of Leviticus chapter 26 tells us. If you haven't already, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. After about a year in this book, we are nearly at the end here. We're in the last two chapters. And as at the end of all major pieces of legislation in the Bible, um, Leviticus ends with a series of blessings and a series of curses. Look at verse 3 here. You can see the structure. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, and here's some blessings, and then in verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and here's a list of curses in Leviticus 26. Um, We're going to spend our time today uh, looking at um, the blessings in the first half of this chapter. And as as we read it, as as we walk through it, I want you to think about why do I do what I do? For what reason am I making the choices that I'm making? And, and is, am I acting wisely? And I want to read through these first uh, 13 verses. I'm going to do it slowly. I'm going to stop quite a bit and talk about the content because I want you to see the structure that's there. And, and we begin here in the first three verses, and what here, what's here is a summary of the law. This is a summary of, of the law. These are three of the most central things involved in honoring God. Three commands. Look what it says here. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. And do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Then verse 3. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands. And he, he continues there. Three commands here, three that are the most central to this uh, Old Testament law for the Israelites to honor God. The first is about idols. Don't make idols. Actually, there's what four verbs, four knots in these verses. Don't make them. Don't set them up. Don't place them. Don't bow down to them. It's a reiteration of the uh, second commandment. And God here is pressing them about their greatest spiritual temptation, the greatest temptation they would face would be to worship idols, to set up idols, images. Why? Because everybody around them, that's what they did. The Israelites lived in a time and a place where everybody had some sort of idol. If you didn't have an image of your God, you didn't worship a God. In fact, the Romans thought that the early Christians were atheists because they didn't have an image of their God. And right off the bat here, God is challenging them about what will be the most countercultural part of their relationship with him. Christianity is countercultural too. 
You can tell, you can hear and sense Christianity's countercultural nature when it bangs up against one of the idols. When, when, our, when our faith touches something in the culture and a sound comes out, you know that, boom, we've hit one of the idols. Huh. I was thinking about this this morning. I used to watch uh, cartoons, right? Little cartoons. Um, not very ethnically sensitive, but uh, I used to watch Speedy Gonzalez. And Speedy Gonzalez would be in his Mexican town and he'd be running around and somebody would be chasing him. Uh, Yosemite Sam or uh, uh, Sylvester. And and inevitably, because it's a small town, there'd be a mission and Speedy Gonzalez would run through a church and inevitably Yosemite Sam would pass him and and somehow uh, Speedy Gonzalez would would trick him and Yosemite Sam would run into the bell of the church, and he would shave. And when, when Christianity in particular impacts our culture and you hear that sound or see that shaking, you know that Christianity has hit one of the idols in our culture. Uh, there was evidence of this not too long ago. Um, this uh, last couple of weeks, uh, Facebook announced that it was changing the gender options that you could have for your account. Used to be male and female, and I think the third option was it's complicated. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, now they've changed it. There are 54 choices for you to identify your own gender. Um, I don't even know what some of them are. Uh, here's here's, here's uh, some of them. Transgender, intersex, gender fluid, and cisgender. That's the one I don't know what that is. I could Google it, but I don't think I want to know. The issue in this, in this change is not just sexual immorality. It's not just about sex. This change is about authority. This is a combination of a rejection of God's creative design and a commitment to the right of self-definition. My body does not determine my reality. My desires do. I determine by myself what kind of sexual being I will be. I have the right to do that. It's only under those circumstances in which someone could talk about being trapped in their body. Right? It's a rejection of God's creative design. And when Christianity affirms that God made us male and female, you hear that gong of this rejection of, of God's authority, his right, right as, as creator. After idolatry here, the the text speaks about Sabbath, verse 2, which is the central identifying nature of of, of Israel. If you went to Israel on Friday night to Saturday night, there was nothing happening. It was rest day. What we see here is is, uh, one of the most practical ways that the law was to affect the nation of Israel. It showed up in their lives, in their calendar. Verse 3, and my translation of verse 3 has two verbs in it, follow and obey. If you have an ESV, it uses three verbs, walk, observe, and do. This relationship with God is a practical reality. It shows up in life. It shows up in how you move. It shows up in your schedule, in what you do. God has the authority to order your day. And for the Israelites, he ordered the Sabbath in their day. And finally here, there's reverence for the sanctuary, isn't it? Have reverence, verse 2 says, for my sanctuary. God has, unlike any other nation, he has moved into the Israelites' presence. 
and they were to value it. They were to treat it with care. They were to respect it. That's why all those commands about sacrifices and clean and unclean laws, they all can be summarized in this having reverence for God's presence, that he's there with them. So there's a summary of the the law in these first three verses. And then in verse 4, we start with the blessings. With the blessings for obedience. There are four of them, and if you're, start, if you're taking notes, I made them all start with the same letter. Isn't that wonderful? My motto for preaching is always avoid alliteration. But here we go. Um, yeah, it's not, okay. The first one, the first blessing is precipitation. Precipitation. Or if you don't care about alliteration, rain. Uh, rain is the most important de- factor in determining the harvest, and God's going to send rain Uh, seasonally, and the ground is going to yield its crops like it should. Look here at verse 4. We'll start in verse 3, beginning of the sentence. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. In this agricultural calendar, they would plant their wheat in the fall, their grain in the fall, and then the winter rains would come and they would harvest it in the spring. Then uh, more rain would come and then they would, in the fall, then harvest their grapes. And what what this passage is saying, God is saying, the harvest is going to be so long, there's going to be so much Uh, so many crops, you're going to be still harvesting when it's time to plant the next season. Can you imagine what would happen to that in Lancaster County if we didn't have uh, snow covering the ground? If the, if the, the crops were so plentiful that you're still trying to get the wheat out of the ground in, in March, in April, when, when you're trying to plant the next, next season? Uh, yesterday I was sitting at my table and uh, we had grapes, had grapes for lunch. Kathy had gotten grapes. There was eating these beautiful, juicy grapes and looking outside at the snow. And I thought, what a miracle this is that I'm eating grapes in February in the Northeast. Uh, Can you imagine what it would be like if I had gotten those grapes from my own vineyard out back because you can get grapes in February in Lancaster County? I mean, I was eating grapes thanks to the wonder of uh, semi-trucks, right? Um, Thanks to the wonder of, of NAFTA. I was eating grapes. And, and, and imagine if that's the way it was all the time. You, you couldn't get the crops out of the ground before it was time to put new ones in. It's God's blessing, precipitation. The second blessing is peace. Peace. Verses 6 through 8. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. They'll have no fear of wild animals. There were at this time lions and bears still in Palestine, no tigers to my knowledge, but there were lions and bears. They wouldn't need to worry about those animals. They wouldn't need to worry about invading armies. Remember Gideon's story? The ladies are studying Gideon's story. Remember, uh, they had their harvest. Gideon was threshing out the grain when God appeared to him. But he was, he was hiding while he was doing it because there was an invading army. It doesn't matter how big your harvest is if an army is going to come and take it from you, right? So uh, no invading army. And, and not just... A, a, a lack of invaders, you're going to have dominance, military dominance. 
Five of you will chase a hundred, a ratio of what, one to twenty. One hundred will chase ten thousand, that's one to a hundred. Remember the story of Sergeant York? So remember Sergeant York. Sergeant Alvin York, Alvin York was one of the most highly decorated soldiers of World War I. They made a movie about him in 1940. October 8, 1918, uh, Sergeant York, actually was a corporal at the time, was um, among a group of soldiers. They had successfully climbed a hill near a rail station, and they had taken out a, a, a nest, a machine gun nest of, of Germans. They would captured a few of them, uh, and there they were standing around, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they didn't see this, didn't know this, higher up on the hill, there was another group of Germans that started um, shooting at them with machine guns, and everybody died except for seven soldiers, and York was the, the uh, highest-ranking soldier. So they, they took cover, and York conceived this plan. He said to them, you stay here. He said to the, the six men that were under his command, you stay here, guard the prisoners that we've got. I'm going to go, and I'm going to take out this, this new nest that we found, this machine gun nest. Sergeant York um, went up there, and uh, he, he captured this whole group of soldiers. He, he charged six soldiers by himself. He fired his rifle, his Enfield rifle at them, and when that was empty, he dropped the rifle, and he pulled out his, his gun, and he shot his pistol. He shot six soldiers. He killed them all. Sergeant York was responsible for uh, obtaining 32 German machine guns, killing 28 German soldiers, and capturing 132 more. It's an amazing story. Now, what if that were true of every single person in the army? Every person in the army could, could, could do that. This astounding victory. Peace. The third P here is population. Population. I will look on you with favor, verse 9, and make you fruitful. And your translation might say multiply. Make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating again here agricultural blessings. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. You remember what God commanded Adam and Noah? What did he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now God says, if you obey me, I'll do that for you. I'll make you fruitful and I'll multiply you in the land. There's going to be this vast population increase. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and uh, for a tangent, a very important tangent, something that we have to talk about. I'm not sure if this is the place to put it in the sermon, but we're going to talk about it here anyway. Uh, thus far, as we've been going through this passage, the promises that God is making to them have to do with physical and material blessings. And God himself is going to provide those material blessings for the people. And on the one hand, this tells us something very significant about God. God is generous. It tells us about his inclination to bless. He's good. He does good. There's fullness in God. He's merciful. He's kind. He's bountiful. He knows exactly what an Israelite farmer in Palestine would long for, and he promises it abundantly. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give to you. This is in keeping with God's character. God is love, the text says, and he's generous. He's, he's good. Do, do you know people like that? Do you have a friend like that? Um, I have a friend named Steve. I met Steve in 2006. Steve lives in Washington, D.C. 
Um, last weekend while we were gone, we were in northern Virginia, and uh, we decided that we were going to go to Steve's church while we were, while we were away. Um, I was hesitant to call Steve and tell him that I was coming to town because I knew what would happen. <laughs> it did. Eventually, I had to call Steve and tell him I was coming to church. And immediately, he said, oh, you should come to my house for dinner because uh, you're going to be in town, and we'd love to have you at my house for dinner. That was wonderful. We had other things that we were going to do, things we wanted to accomplish while we were in D.C., so I, I turned him down. Um, the first time he asked us for dinner, he did it uh, on the phone. The second time I did it was when we were actually at church leaving. He said, are you sure you don't want to come to my house to dinner? No, Steve. It's, thank you. No. Um, we showed up at church, and Steve had saved uh, six, five seats for us at the perfect spot to see the pulpit because he was thinking about us. We were real close, I thought to myself. My son does not obey in church. This could be bad. But uh, there we were. Steve had saved the best places for us to sit. Um, so I was talking to Steve while he's sitting in front of these chairs. I, I said, Steve, where, where's your wife? Where's your kids? He said, I don't know. We'll find some other place to sit. But I saved these seats for you. He invited us for dinner again. And then... Um, I knew Steve, actually I knew Steve would invite us to dinner because uh, one time we were driving down to Washington, we were actually, I was with a group of seven or eight other people and we were going to the Reagan airport to pick up Pastor Scott and his team that were on a missions trip. We were going to pick him up from Reagan and we were driving through Steve's neighborhood and it was dinner time and I called Steve and I said, Steve, I, I got seven people and I, uh, can you give me a good place to go to eat for dinner? I need a restaurant recommendation. Steve said, come to my house. So on a moment's notice, his wife fed all seven of us dinner. We showed up at their house. The ba only bad part was she served green beans, but that's another matter. Uh, so I was talking to Steve after the service, and Steve said, hey, you know, if you're going to be down here looking at the Smithsonian, you know our parking spot that's in our apartment is really close to the Smithsonian, so we can move our car and you can park in our spot if you want, and then you don't have to pay for parking. And let me tell you, too, he said, we have an apartment underneath our house, and we have a tenant, but she's moving out, and we wanna, uh, we're going to redo the uh, apartment, and it's going to be available for people who come to visit our church and missionaries who are in town, and you can use our house anytime you want. If you have this apartment, you can have it anytime. I can't talk with Steve without him trying to give me something. He is constantly pouring out his generosity to us. This is, I can't open God's word without God giving something, without him sharing, without his generosity and his blessings over, overflowing. That's, that's who God is. Now, this may not accord with your image, the image that you have of God. Some people think that the God of the Bible is stingy. That, that, um, that he, he apparently is opposed to this idea that I can continually self-identify. So God must be an ogre. But God's streams of mercy are rich and deep and they don't run dry. Now that's true. But I think I should warn you this morning about a false reading of this passage. There are those who want to take passages like this that talk about physical and material blessings and they want to apply them immediately and directly to followers of Christ today and they want to speak about them divorced from the context that they are in. Uh, these are men and women who are part of the Word of Faith movement and they teach what's called prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel. You can find men and women like this easily on television. And they have a very consistent message. 
God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. The Word of Faith movement is by far the largest part of the charismatic movement within Christianity. Uh, And uh, there are parts of the world in Africa and in South America where the predominant belief is that Christianity is chiefly about being rich and happy and healthy. So uh, they're not coming to hear about Jesus and his death on the cross. They're coming to hear about how how God will make them wealthy and God will make them healthy. If you believe, if you think positively, God will give you everything you want. Every day will be Friday and you can have your best life now. A common element in this passage, in this teaching, this word of faith, prosperity teaching, is um, uh, the seed movement. Give us a gift, plant a seed, and God will give you millions. All you need to do is send money to us and uh, um, a little bit of money, and God will repay you ten times, a hundred times. Plant a seed, and God will pay you back. This is one of those passages that can be twisted toward that end, toward prosperity theology. Prosperity, um, the prosperity gospel is not the gospel of the Bible. It's not Christianity. In fact, it's a satanic way of reading the Bible. Now, we don't have time to go into great detail on this this morning, but what I want to do is I want to just mention very briefly seven errors that these health and wealth teachers make, these health and wealth prophets make. Here's the first one. They apply promises given to ancient Israel to Christians today. They apply promises that were given to ancient Israel to Christians today. This passage was for a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. Remember, they're farmers. They're moving into the land. Agricultural abundance is what they would want. And God had promised them this land very specifically. So his blessing was closely tied to the material prosperity. God has not made those same promises to Christians today. Now, second, they neglect the teaching of the Bible on suffering. They neglect what the Bible teaches about suffering. You can't read Romans and you can't read James and uh, you can't read 2 Corinthians without recognizing that God wants to teach you things that you can only learn in the midst of suffering. Who knows more about God? A false prophet, prosperity gospel preacher who wears glittering diamonds and rides in the back of a limo and and flies on their own private jet to their own private resort, or the single mom who's got cancer who lives in a two-room house with her kids in India who's clinging to God. Who knows more about God's grace? We, we could talk forever about this. Third, though, here, we'll move on. They reject the warnings of the Bible about loving money. They reject the Bible's warnings about loving money. The New Testament warns against having an unhealthy obsession. Those who want to be rich, the Bible says, fall into all kinds of errors and all kinds of trouble. And um, these prosperity preachers, their own lives demonstrate this. They're in the news consistently for uh, affairs and divorces and financial shenanigans and drug abuse and spousal abuse. I just read not too long ago about one of the um, most well-known pastors in the world in South Korea, uh, a church he leads of over 100,000 members was just uh, indicted and uh, actually just convicted of uh, financial fraud, of taking embezzling money from his church. Uh, His son's going to prison. Uh, His son was involved too. Uh, Fourth, they ignore the span of the biblical story. 
They ignore the span of the biblical story. I believe that all the promises of the Bible will be fulfilled. Uh, Christina read from Psalm 103, one of the blessings of God is healing. God is going to heal all diseases. But the Bible does not want us to think about these in, in, a, in terms of a few short years, but thousands of years. The prophet Ezekiel, when he was talking about the end times, appeals to Leviticus 26. He, he quotes it and expands on it. In that great day when God brings everything to conclusion, all of these promises will be filled in their glorious array. Fifth, they rob the cross of its significance. They rob the cross of its significance. If, if God promises health and wealth and happiness to everyone who believes, everyone who thinks positively, and everybody who has enough faith, why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it because Jesus wasn't thinking positively enough that he suffered? I mentioned that this was a satanic way to read the Bible. It was Satan who used the Bible in Jesus' day to say to Jesus, hey, angels will keep you from, from stubbing your toe, from hurting your feet. You, you can do anything because the Bible says that God's going to keep you healthy. That's how Satan reads the Bible. And yet Jesus went to the cross. God ordained suffering for the one person who trusted him without parallel. Sixth, prosperity preachers shred the call of Jesus to follow him. Jesus said, if you want to follow him, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Was Jesus confused about this when he said, take up your cross? Was he kidding? Did he not understand? Was he wrong? The Apostle Paul said that sometimes he despaired of life. He said, I feel like a sheep that's being led to, to the slaughter. Was, was it because Paul lacked faith? Paul, you just need to start thinking more positively. Finally here, prosperity preaching overemphasizes the physical at the cost of the spiritual. It overemphasizes the physical at the cost of the spiritual. You know, Jesus made some promises about food and about clothing. What did he say, though, about them? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you. You'll have enough. I'll, God will, will care for you. He, he clothes the flowers. He feeds the birds. He'll take care of you. Seek first his kingdom. It's actually the spiritual that we can, we can go as we return here to Leviticus chapter 26 and we find the, the last promise that God makes after precipitation and peace and population. Now presence, presence. Not uh, Christmas present, but presence. Well, look at the text here. Um, verse 11. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you. I'll be present with you. I'll be your God, and you will be my people. Uh, th this is a, a promise about God's being with them. And, and this word walk is so crucial here in this passage. I will walk with you. Remember, Leviticus is a sequel, one of the sequels to the book of Genesis. And does that word walk ring a bell to you? Walk. God walked with Abraham. Enoch walked with God. In the cool of the day, God came and he walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God says, if you want that, if you want this um, 
life, turn from idols, observe the Sabbath, preserve my sanctuary, follow the law, and your life, by God's promise, will be, it will be like a recreation of Eden. Food will be growing everywhere and there will be this intimacy with God. They would know the abundance of God's presence with them. These are the promises that God, God makes. This is what they would experience as they walk with him. And the New Testament is not, does not ignore these sorts of rewards or these sources of, of, sorts of promises. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, real, abundant life. Or the Apostle Paul talked about our existence. He said, this, this life, this is just momentary. It's light and compared to the eternal weight of glory. Ah, what's 10 months of chemotherapy in comparison to 10,000 years of being in God's presence? Light and momentary, eternal. Embedded here, though, I think in this passage, just the Old Testament, the New Testament echoes some of these themes, are a couple principles that I think speak clearly to the issue of motivation. And I want to share them with you as, as we finish this morning. Here's the first one. How you live shows what you love. How you live shows what you love. Why do you do what you do? You do what you do because you are living out of your love. This is the positive side of this message. If you were an Israelite farmer, you loved abundant harvests. You loved peace. You loved having a big family. And you loved the pleasure of having God dwell with you. So if you want these things, if you value them, if they matter to you, then turn from idols and keep the Sabbath and honor God's sanctuary. You are always in pursuit of what you love, what you think will make you happy. That's the basic principle of, of motivation, isn't it? it? It can be on the positive side or it can be diagnostic, can it? What if you read this passage and you're an Israelite and this doesn't sound good to you? What does that say about what you love? That actually should concern you as you read this passage. There are a number of reactions that you could have to Leviticus 26. I'm thinking about two of them in my mind right now. Some of you have read this passage and have already thought, yes, I knew that. This is what God is like. This is what God does. And I want in on this. I know not these specifics because it's God's promise to Israel, but this is the sort of relationship that I want with God. And you've already said to yourself, I want to follow him more closely. I want to do what he says about life. I want to do what he says about work and about marriage because God's blessings are abundant. He's generous and he's good. And I want in on what God has. Some of you have already thought that. Some of you, though, maybe you read this and you think this sounds Boring. It's not what you want. You read this and it's, it would be like me saying to my children, hey everybody, if you clean your room and do a great job, I will give you some math homework. Or your boss coming up to you and saying, okay everybody, we've got a lot to do this week. Trust me, if you work really hard and get everything done, I'm going to take away three vacation days. It would not motivate you. Maybe you read this and, and you think, oh, in God's presence? Maybe it's just not motivating you. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, Paul quotes this passage, uh, Leviticus 26, when he's talking about uh, the church. God's going to dwell with us. He's going to walk with us. He's going to be our God and we'll be his people. What if that 
bores you and it has no meaning to you or no significance to you. What does that say about what you love? Or if if Moses is using this to motivate the Israelites, what does Moses know about God that you don't know about God? That when you read this, it doesn't make any significance to you. It doesn't make any difference to you. There's this motivation. This motivation can be diagnostic. How does, what does how you live say about what you love? Now, this passage says something else, though, I think, here. How you live shows what you love, that's true. But secondly, you change how you live by changing what you love. You change how you live by changing what you love. I think that's the point of verse 13. That's why verse 13 is in this passage. It's for when the diagnostic of motivation brings you up short. Look at what verse 13 says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. This is a passage that's meant to remind the Israelites about what God has already done, how he has already demonstrated his goodness and his kindness. If you're wondering about whether or not you want to walk with God, remember that he has stepped in and stepped down and set you Israelites free. Slavery is like a yoke on an oxen and it weighs you down. God has lifted it up so you can stand up straight. And this is what God is like and what he does. Do you want more of that? Don't you want more of that? Now, it should not surprise you to know, if you've been around here for uh, uh, any length of time, that the New Testament does not consistently point us back to the Exodus like the Old Testament does. The New Testament consistently points us back to the cross. Not the deliverance from physical slavery, but from our human slavery to sin and death. And not just freedom for one generation or one nation, but freedom for everyone who believes. We were in our natural state in enmity with God, bowed down under the, the sentence of God's wrath. And God has rescued us by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. He set us free. We walk unashamed in his presence. This week we started a new Bible story book at my house. And unlike any of the others that we have read, it mentioned in the fall, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, the text says they realized they, didn't, they were naked. Well, I have little children at my house. They thought that was funny. They didn't have any clothes on. Children laugh at that. That's okay. And it occurred to me at that moment that they don't realize yet. They haven't been scarred enough by the world to know how painful shame is and how awful it is. And God lifts up the bar of slavery and death and, and punishment. This is the world that you have been invited into. This is the world. Moses is introducing us to a God who, if, if following him were a grand house tour, there was, there's always another garden. There's always another grand room. There's always something more beautiful. If God is the chef in this passage, there is always another course to come of beautiful food. If, if God is showing us into a museum, there is always another masterpiece to see. And if you have any doubt about that, remember that God has already given us his son. 
So walk in this. Obey this. Keep, um, keep it. Be shaped by it. My hope this morning is that I want to awaken you again to the wonder of God's happy presence so, so that this would be what you would love and it would push you forward in changing how you live. This is the month of February, so it's, it's officially the month when you um, either happily or are forced to, if you want, to watch romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, right? So you watch those love movies with your sweetheart. I read a study not too long ago that said that um, uh, couples who watch uh, romantic movies and then talk about them have better and healthier relationships. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But the plot of every romantic comedy is the same, isn't it? Basically, you start out with these two people, and for some reason they hate each other. I don't know what it is, there's some reason that they can't get along. Um, she's a nag, he's a jerk, she's unattractive, he's too busy to notice how much she cares. There's some huge obstacle, and inevitably there's this moment, it's near the end, when it dawns on both of them how perfect they are for one another. They, they awaken up, they awaken and then they look at each other and they say, oh, you're everything I ever wanted and needed and I didn't know. Right? It's the plot of every romantic comedy. Romantic comedies don't usually have sequels. It ends after they say, you're everything I wanted, everything I need. They don't have sequels. If they did, it would be the story of how they forgot that they were everything that they needed and wanted and how they rediscovered it again. Leviticus 26 is the sequel to the book of Exodus. God is everything that the people wanted and needed. I wonder if your eyes are open so that you can see that again. Life, 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 God promises. Abundant life for those who walk in his ways. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, thank you that you are a God who is abundant in your blessings. You are able to do more than all we ask or imagine. We can't even conceive of, of the good things that await those who, who follow you faithfully. But Father, we struggle to believe that. We, we struggle to want that. We, we struggle to want your blessings. We're, we're foolish enough to think that we would, we would rather have the life that we can carve, the life that we can make, rather than the life that you offer through your Son. We're, we're fools. By your kindness, by your kindness, would you draw us again to yourself? Would you show us again your abundant goodness, that we would embrace it and, and love it and pursue it by heeding carefully what you say. Father, make us a church, a congregation of people who are striving hard after God for the life that comes through Jesus Christ. Help us to encourage one another to that end. And we pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.